Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Prog Report podcast interview. This is Roy. Hope everybody's doing okay out there. Before we begin, just a reminder to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're also on Spotify, Podbean, and you can check out special episodes on YouTube as well. And make sure you check out progreport.com for upcoming news, interviews, reviews, and more. Lots of great stuff coming up. And our live stream that happens every other Saturday on our YouTube channel, 10 a.m. Eastern on Saturdays. We've had a lot of great guests and we've covered a lot of people. And here and there, we find that we have missed an opportunity to speak with another legendary artist. And here we have another one of those guys that I can't believe we haven't had on the show yet, but it just happens that way sometimes. Um, My guest today is the amazing Carl Palmer, drummer, of course, for ELP and Asia and a bunch of other things that he had done in his long career. I got a chance to speak to him about the new ELP book that he just was involved in and his time with that band some of their amazing work. There's a new Asia box set that we talk about and some really cool things that he has coming up that are planned as well. So here's my chat with Carl. Check it out. Hey, Carl. How you doing? Yeah, I'm fine, Roy. How you doing? I'm doing very well. It's an honor to get to speak with you. You know, our paths have crossed a couple of times on Cruise to the Edge and and, uh, I've seen you at the Royal uh, Fair Tour. um, And I do some work on these kind of events, introducing things and on Cruise to the Edge. So Right. I think we've met in passing briefly for maybe five seconds, not that well, okay. do you remember, but I, I'm a big fan, obviously, of, of, hey, of, your, you. long, of your long career, ELP, and obviously Asia. And actually, I'll tell you what, my dad, uh, growing up, introduced me to Atomic Rooster, uh, you know, way back when I was young and everything, so. All uh, right, we knew there was someone who was interested in Atomic Rooster. <laughs> yeah, he very had... well, Atomic Rooster, actually, as I left them, they had a number one single, and uh, I'd already recorded it um, as a demo. And, of course, when I was sitting in the, the rehearsal room with Greg and Keith, um, you know, the radio came on and uh, we were talking and um, we were listening to Radio 1, I think it would have been, BBC 1, and uh, Tubic Rooster, number one, you know, tomorrow night. And I couldn't believe it because I thought I'd made a terrible mistake, as you can imagine. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, you know, to think about... You, so you were with Arthur Brown, which was had a success. Arthur Brown, yeah, in 1968. Right, and then Tom McRooster had success, and then you go to ELP, which obviously was was groundbreaking and huge, and then really another act again with Asia. That's yeah. uncommon, really, for an artist, right, to have repeated success. Well, I mean, I mean you're lucky if you have one, you know. All bands that have had number one singles, I've been in, though, you know, the Atomic Rooster, I'd left by the time they did it, but... I recorded it, you know what I mean? Um, Arthur's, you know, Fire, I recorded that, and they gave me a percentage. There's loads of players on the album, so whether or not I'm on the album, we'll never know, but <laughs> Arthur's a great friend, and obviously ELP had a, had number one here in the UK, number one in Canada. Asia had a number one so in the US, so I suppose it's rare, really, yeah. I mean, I, I, but I've, I, to, be, to be honest with you, I'm not a gun for hire. You can't hire me. You know, even if you were my my best friend and you said, would you play on my album? I'd probably say no. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't do that. 
You know, yeah. I only play music that's directly connected to me. Uh, right. You know, where it enhances my career. Uh, you know, I don't, um, I don't play for other people if I can help it at all. Well, the only person I've ever done it with is Mike Oldfield. Right. Yeah. No, I, it's true. I mean, I, you're not one of these artists that you see pop up as a, as a guest on, on all these different things. When no, you really, I never when do. You really think about it, but all credit to you for that. Uh, I want to talk about it. You have a bunch of stuff still going on. Always busy. Uh, Whatever first, you want to ask. Yeah, Let's first go. is the uh, the new Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer uh, book that was just released, the official illustrated story in their own words. Yeah. Um, beautiful book, fantastic pictures, really well done. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, the process of putting that together. Uh, yeah, no problem. So uh, the book was something that what I managed to do was I managed to be sort of the, the, the chief editor on all of that. So I, I did all of the editing. And what we tried to do, which was my main goal, was to try and put a book together with the group telling the story of the various albums that had come out and how they had progressed through their career. And the only way to really do that would be to use interviews. Uh, and obviously, there's quite a few interviews which were incorrect, which came my way. And I said, you know, the boys, guys never said that. I never said that. That's just journalists, you know, padding stuff out. Mm. You know, things like, you know, Jimi Hendrix was going to be in ELP. And it was going to be called Help. All of that is absolute rubbish. Right. You know, none of that ever happened. I never saw Jimi Hendrix. He never played with us. So I had to siphon through um, you know, a lot of stuff like that. But I managed to get something for every album, you know, that we did, uh, as we, uh, that we covered in the book. And we managed to get the pictures which related to uh, that period in time. Then when the story was thin uh, on an album, you know, when we didn't have enough coverage, all I did was uh, get myself re-interviewed, uh, asking the right questions. And mm. I would put into the book, you know, what was missing. So the stories would tally up and that period that frame would actually make sense of what was going on so that's how it was done it was it was a labor of love it took about six months and um quite uh, quite happy with it it's it's sold reasonably well you know it is the definitive elp book i mean i'm very proud of it because of the the work that i put into it and the the photographs that we managed to find that hadn't been seen for years or hadn't been seen at all was quite remarkable so all in all it was a pretty good book and then i worked with uh, <coughs> with regina regina lake and uh, with aaron and just made sure they felt comfortable with everything that was going down. And uh, they were. So, it, you know, it took, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't that hard, if you see what I mean. Yeah, sure. No, it's, it's really nicely done. Uh, when you go back and revisit that era, um, is there something particular that maybe is the main thing that you that that you feel or remember from from going back and looking looking at that period with that band? Well, to be honest with you, when you're in something like that, it's such a whirlwind. You never really enjoy it as it's happening. You only really enjoy it once it's stopped and you look back and, and you listen and you look at, you know, video footage or you listen to recordings that you've made. Uh, and, and now, you know, it's such a, an unbelievable time. When I, when I think about it, um, you know, the group laid down the blueprint for basic, for prog rock, really. I mean, we were one of the first, if not the first. I mean, things like Tarkas and stuff, you mm -hmm. know, though they don't have a strong concept, we were using the latest 
that you you know technology you could use like the Moog, which was the big thing at the time. We had a, a strong relationship with Bob Moog, who visited us on many occasions. So I mean, the group really was on the, the cutting edge of a, a lot of stuff, and uh, you know I suppose you could say the Floyd were as well. But we were a lot more sort of intense, I think, you know, and we had that crossover using. Uh, European sort of like music, classical music, and making sort of modern day contemporary adaptations out of it using the instruments of the moment. So we, we had a different sort of blend, I think. And uh, yeah, no, unbelievably proud. I mean, it was incredibly hard. I mean, you had three completely um, different individuals. You know, um, you know, we didn't we didn't socialise very much, if ever at all. I mean, very very rare. Um, but when we played, it was, and when we worked, it, I hate to use the word, but it was magic, you know, no doubt yeah. about it. It just happened. It was one of those things. You don't know how it comes about. You don't know why it comes about, but there is something there. And the fact that uh, Keith and Greg had that much friction, but even, but love on the other hand as well between them, you know, made the music really what it was because I mean, Keith was an unbelievable writer and Greg could come up with some very, very simple three chord tunes that would make you cry. So we had, you know, we had the blend and to call us a prog rock band was a little bit sort of stifling in a way, because I think we were a bit more eclectic than that. We, we, we played a lot more. We weren't just progged out. We had these three-minute love songs and things, which at the time, you know, people couldn't quite evaluate what we were doing. And then you'd hear Tarkas, and then you'd hear a, a, a version of the Mazorsky's pictures at an exhibition. So who are these guys? And right. it was keyboard-driven. After all of that, it wasn't driven by guitars. So this was, a, this was quite an oddball setup, but uh, absolute quality. That's what I recall with the LP, quality. You know, I, I'm actually curious about that when when the three of you got together and it, it's leaning keyboard based obviously with what Keith was doing but back uh, during that period everything was very guitar driven right around the same era as yes. as Clapton Hendrix Pete Townsend and and all these guys was yes. there ever pressure from from management and labels you get, you need a guitar player you, you know you're I not mean, doing it right yeah i mean to be honest with you i mean unless you've met you'd met all three people in Emerson, Lake and Palmer to, uh, together. Um, there's no way we would ever be pressurized. There's no way we, we just, you just couldn't pressurize the, the members of ELP, not even the record company, because we would just leave. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were with Atlantic Records for 10 years and we asked them to make, you know, to make the records for us, but we wanted them all back after the 10-year period, so they belonged to us. And they did it, mm. you know. But ELP had a very, very strong, very, very good legal team behind us. And from that point of view, um, you know, we couldn't be pressurized. And there was no reason, really, when you've got an instrumentalist like Keith Emerson, there's no reason to add guitar, because Greg could play enough rhythm guitar, and he played lead parts as well on the tracks like Welcome Back, you know. So uh, as far as we were concerned, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a deal. In fact, having the keyboards as the main lead instrument, we stood out. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. No doubt about that. And don't forget, technology was starting. That was when technology started for keyboards. You know, uh, Bob Moog made that big, the big Moog, which had all the oscillators and all that stuff going on. 
and then, you know, he capitalized on that and made the mini Moog. And many people like Rick Wakeman sort of made their name playing a mini Moog, which is just like two octaves. You know, it's a very small little, little keyboard. Um, so we had all of that and it was all going for us. So it, it was a big deal, really. And the fact that Keith jumped onto that quickly, I think he met a guy called Mike Vickers, who used to be keyboard player in Manfred Mann's group and he had this Moog synthesizer which was set up for the studio. You have to realize that the, the Moog synthesizer that ELP kind of made their name on wasn't really an instrument for traveling on the road with. You know, we had to have all these special padded uh, road cases, uh, airlift road cases where they, the, the Moog was suspended. You know, it never bounced up and down. I mean, it just was a nightmare to, right. to move around. But there was no one creating that sound. Uh, and we had to do it. So, you know, we were forerunners in, in a lot of different areas, really. Hey, groundbreaking even with your album covers, too, which I, I want to touch on a little bit. Uh, brain salad surgery, obviously, being one. Um, talk about working with, uh, with HR Geiger on, on that cover and, and maybe even some of the other covers, because I think that's also part of your influence. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, um, HR Geiger, you know, we didn't know who he was. He was quite a well-known Swiss artist and quite a recluse. Anyway, our promoter or agent that we had in uh, Austria, Switzerland was called Peter Zumsteak. And Peter said one day, you know, look, if you guys have got today off, would you like to take a short drive and go and see this artist friend of mine? So we said, no. Why do we want to do that? If you've got some pictures, we'll have a look at them and we'll review him. You know, because ELP was cold-blooded. You know, it didn't really, you know, wouldn't investigate anything unless we knew it was, you know, it was worth our time. Anyway, he talked us into it. And he did it by saying, and there's a great restaurant that we should go to and they do this. So we all said, OK, fine, let's go and see Geiger for five minutes. Then let's head off to the restaurant. Anyway, we went mm -hmm. to Geiger's house in the middle of nowhere. We met the guy. We must have been there two hours. We must have been there two hours. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Very strange man. <laughs> very weird property. Everything was black inside. Very goth. A bit like the Munsters type of place, you know. Wow. Very weird man. Didn't talk at all. Um, you know, in the hallway had a huge black throne with two arms joined together with a syringe and funny shit like that, that, you know, you just, you, th you know, didn't appeal to me. And then we went into this other room where he got finished artwork and Keith spotted the brain salad surgery cover that, you know, on a stand already done. So we had no input there at all. We didn't need to. Wow. It was there. And we, he looked at it, Keith, and he picked it up. And uh, I can't remember who said whether it was myself or Greg said, that's got to be for us, surely. You know, and that was it. And Trilogy, Trilogy, we decided, Trilogy, that was all to do with the, the album. So Trilogy was the first album we made where we didn't even consider playing it on stage. In other words, we were going to play it on stage, but we knew because of the amount of overdubs on Trilogy, we wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, every album we made before that, Pictures and Exhibition, the very first album, Tarkas, you know, we knew we could play on stage, those first three, and we would sound like the record. But with Trilogy, we decided just to overdub, use the studio as an instrument as much as we possibly could, and just make the best record. Unfortunately, during that period, they didn't have what they call MIDI now, uh, then, 
they have it now. Obviously, a MIDI, basically, you know, you can put two or three keyboards, you know, together, hook them up, put them through this, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, you play one keyboard and the three will sound. And, of course, you can program each keyboard differently. So you get this huge, huge sound. And uh, they didn't have that then, but they have it now. So, I mean, it's a lot easier. But back in those days, it wasn't available, but we thought we've just got to make the best record. So we decided to to do that. Uh, Let's just make the best record we can. It was very difficult to tour with it. And we said, let's just be, you know, really open uh, with the album cover. Let's just have our, we, let's have our profiles on the front, but not a photograph, something that's kind of airbrushed. And it was, it was a very simple kind of um, thing, really. You know, it wasn't complicated. We went and had some um, pictures taken in Epping Forest, which is very close to, to London, not far from where I am. And we, we liked the forest itself was kind of famous, you know, so we had some pictures taken there, uh, and that was it. And it was, you know, uh, and I can tell you now that the the album covers for ELP, the first album cover was also a done deal. We saw it with this artist it had the, the the guy's head, the cranium with the dove flying out the back. That was already complete. And mm. EG, the management we had at the time, showed it to us, and we took it on. The only one we really had much input into. Uh, from those first three or four albums. Uh, Brain Salad Surgery, as I said, was done. The first album was done. Trilogy, we came up with that idea, and that's why Trilogy looks like it does. Pictures at an exhibition um, was William Neal, and, you know, we, we, we just went along with that as a something that would um, just, you know, it's an exhibition, it's pictures, it's Mazorsky. Yeah, that looks good. Let's just put that out. Don't forget it was a live album. So right. we, we sold it at a reduced price. Uh, and we kept everything um, um, we kept everything sort of down, as it were, uh, and that, uh, price-wise, I mean. Uh, and there's a prime example of ELP. So we released the first album. It's a big success in America. We don't realize how big it's been, but Lucky Man takes it into the top ten. Um, and then they, they get involved with the rest of the tracks, Knife Edge and Tank and whatever. Um, and on the B side, you know, there's a lot of Keith just playing the Royal Albert Hall organ. So it was a, it's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a hard thing to do and expect them to, to buy into that. But people did. And um, we then wanted to record something live. And we'd always rehearse pictures at an exhibition. And um, we decided to record it at Newcastle City Hall, which we did. And then when we took it to the record company, and this is typical ELP, we said, uh, we want to sell this cheaper. And they said, well, we don't think we want to release it. So we said, no, we want to, we want to release it. You've got to release this. We insist you release this. Right. But we want to sell it cheaper. So they said, uh, well, we, why? Why? Why don't we go full price on it? And we said, well, it was a live recording. Um, it cost us an awful lot less to make. You can see that the artwork is, is, is pretty good. You know, it, it, it is pictures at an exhibition, but it's very simple. It's a gatefold. It happened very quickly. Willie, William Neal, the artist who did it, who we already had an idea and had put it together. So I said, we just want to sell it uh, cheaper. And Arvid Ertigan, who was the president at the time, said, oh, I, you guys are crazy. You shouldn't do that. Anyway, to cut a long story short, <laughs> um, we managed to uh, convince them to sell it cheaper, and we did sell it for less 
than what it would have cost us if we'd made a studio album. They didn't understand we wanted to pass on to our fans, you know, the benefit of, but we figured that that would be the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, we had some very high standards, some high morals, actually. And uh, the, the record company didn't get it because they, they were American, and I understand that. Commerce is very important, but, you know, we're European English guys, and we think, well, hang on a minute. No, um, let's not... Uh, uh, let, let's not rip the public off here. They, they know it's recorded live. They know it costs less. So let's let's make a point. And we just wanted to set a standard. Obviously, a lot of people never followed that. I mean, people like Frampton Comes Alive sold it full price and probably made more money. You know, and, <laughs> sure. And we probably could have made more money, but it, it, you know that wasn't really our game. Really, that wasn't really where we were at. Sure. Um, well, over the last few years, many years, you've been playing uh, with the EOP Legacy, incredible band with uh, Paul Bilatovich on guitar. Um, talk about discovering Paul, how you met Paul and realized that, you know, you could re replicate a, a version of what Keith was doing with Paul playing guitar because it's the most unique experience watching that. Um, well, I mean, Paul wasn't the first guitar player. The first guitar player was um, Sean Baxter who was teaching at the London, at the Acton School for Guitar here in London. And, um, and Dave Marks was the very first bass player. Paul and Simon have been with me the longest, and they've definitely ended up being the best musicians for what I needed to do. And they've become great friends, as you can imagine, and, and they are incredibly talented as individuals. Um, Paul came to me as a, a kind of... Um, as a second choice, you know, because Sean Baxter was in the band, we had uh, a car crash and Sean um, was sitting in the car and the seatbelt cut into his neck mm. and uh, he developed tinnitus in one of his ears because we were pushed forward. We were hit from behind and then he developed it in his other ear. And it started to affect his tuning and his playing. Anyway, he basically had to stop playing live. So at that particular stage, I was kind of concerned because I was getting people from the guitar school to, um, to make transfers from keyboard parts to the guitar. And I was trying to work out what could be played on guitar, what couldn't be played on guitar. And I realized the standard of guitar playing was so much higher you know, than what the keyboard players were when I started the band back in 2001. I figured, you know, I'd like to go this way because ELP's music is so adaptable. I mean, this could be an exciting way to do it. And technology was, had started to improve for guitars. It wasn't just a wah-wah pedal anymore. Right. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Paul um, got, sent me a, a cassette of him playing Flight of the Bumblebee. And... Uh, it wasn't great, you know, but I thought, wow, you know, this guy has definitely got some fingers, you know, uh, I need to see him. And uh, I met up, I listened to some more stuff that he got, and I figured, you know, um, I would rather have somebody that, you know, would get better and be enthusiastic rather than somebody that was jaded, you know, and got lots of luggage. And he came, he came full of enthusiasm, uh, and I realized that's, that's what the music would want. I'd already had uh, lots of uh, guitar parts sort of set up for guitarists to play, whoever was in the band. So mm. I knew what could be played on guitar. Uh, so, you know, they couldn't sort of uh, BS me in any way by saying, Carl, you can't do that. Because I'd already gone through, uh, 
you know, a guy that specialized in transcribing um, keyboard parts to the guitar fretboard. So I, I knew exactly where I was, and, and it happened very naturally with Paul, and he realized that it was a great opportunity, and he knuckled down just the same as, the, uh, as Simon did. So, you know, very, very happy to have both of them, actually. Really, really pleased and thoroughly enjoyable to play with. Yeah. Is that, is that band still going to be going back on tour? I think you just finished the run, right, recently? We just finished uh, 22 or 23. Well, we finished yeah, uh, about this weekend. It'd be a month ago. We did a, a, a tour of the uh, of the UK. Um, prior to that, we were in America in February, and then prior to that, we were in America in November. So where we are as we speak is um, right now. We're sort of um, we're looking at Simon's wife is having a, a baby, um, so he didn't want to be uh, away for June or July. So. Um, May was obviously difficult because we got some other problems with COVID and stuff. He'd already had COVID. He didn't want to give it to her, you know, so we had to be very careful. So we kind of, we've taken out these, um, these three months, as it were. Um, possibly Paul and myself might play, uh, uh, play in America during July. We might. Uh, some flying dates um, where we'd only play like 45 minutes. There's a, another Chapman stick player, uh, called Tom Gies, uh, Berger, a Berger. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he plays with some L.A. sort of guitar trio. A very nice guy, Tom Giesberger. And um, I've already spoken to him, and we've talked about stuff we might play, but it wouldn't be a tour. It'd be just like some flying dates for the summer where we're supporting someone. So we're going to look at that if it comes about. If it doesn't happen then what we will be looking at is, um, is the, the new show with the CPL, CP, uh, um, ELP Legacy. At the end of the year, I've got this, um, I've just finished, funny speaking to you today, because yesterday I finished all the videos. I've got uh, uh, a new show that I'm going to involve Keith and Greg on film, and we're going to play with them in situ. And the film that uh, you'll see will be from the Royal Albert Hall in London, it was a live DVD shoot, and it happened over two days. And there's five cameras, and it's, it's, it's really, really good. The, the, oh, wow. Sonically, it's perfect. I can't, you know, the, obviously, some of the footage isn't up to IMAX standard, but it's the moment in time that's been captured, and it is, it's brilliant. So I've done all the editing on that, and I've got about five tunes where, you know, Greg is singing, and I will play with them. They'll be on a screen each side of the stage. I'll be in the middle of the stage. I'll be on a screen at the back. And if we need to reinforce it with Paul and Simon, we will. And then Paul, Simon, and myself will play things like Tarkas and Carmina Barana down as well. And, you know, so overall it will be a mixture of, of the two bands, as it were. That's amazing. That's great. We're breaking some news. I love that. Um, yeah, I hope to see that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's it's um, all, I mean, we, we're, we're up there and, and ready to do it. The families are well behind it, the Emerson family. And, and, and of course, again, I've had to sort of involve them, you know, because I started in 2018. We were looking at holograms and things, and it got a bit too spooky for me, you know. I sort of <laughs> saw the Ronnie James Dio thing, and I thought that was okay, you know, but it's something's not quite right. Then I went to a, a hologram concert, which was a, um, Frank Zappa, and then I saw, and I didn't enjoy that. That was wrong because there's problems with sight lines. You know, if you're too far to the side or too far forward, you can't see Frank below his knees. And if you're off to the side, it looks a bit shady. It looks a little bit, doesn't look real enough. So 
So, uh, and I saw the, you know, a Whitney Houston thing on YouTube. Obviously, I didn't go to the show, and I thought, well, what I need to do is just, uh, uh, I need to just see what I can find if there's another way of doing it. And then this live DVD cropped up. And the reason why I'm using it is, is not because the holograms didn't work out, because I did try a couple of companies, one in LA, one in Canada. The reason why I'm using it is, is because. When you see the artist playing live and it's on film, if you can integrate that into your show, it's much better than a hologram. It's much better. Obviously, it's difficult to do. And I've taken the last, what, uh, seven, eight weeks, couple of months, just doing the editing online here with uh, the chap in, uh, in, in, in Florida that I work with, David Frangione. And, you know, to be honest with you, this is by far the only way you can really integrate it and make it look real because it is them and they are right. in concert and they are playing. And of course, Keith and Greg, mid nineties were at their very best. So this to me is the best way to do it. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Um, before I let you go, I just want to talk real quick a little bit about uh, Asia also um, because you've been really busy with that world with box sets and things coming out. And there's a new one. Um, we Asia, had a box set release, the... which was the Asia in Asia. So right. that would be the anniversary for that is next year. That was Asia in Asia, December the 6th, 81 or whatever it was, at, from the Budokan. Uh, and that was a great concert. It was a satellite broadcast straight into MTV. It was the first time I think MTV had been involved with that. David Geffen, who run the record company, Geffen Records, set us up for that. And we had one major problem, as you probably well know. Yeah. John Wetton wasn't very well and kind of was ill. Um, well, he basically was a chronic alcoholic and he just couldn't, he couldn't help himself anymore and he had to be helped. So we couldn't take John with us. Obviously, you know, the satellite time had been booked. It's incredibly expensive. MTV had been put on red alert. So what were we going to do? So David Geffen's right-hand man is called John Kolodna and uh, John Kolodna suggested Greg Lake. And Greg Lake did a terrific job. He had the music for a week at home. Then we rehearsed with him for a week in London and then for a week in Japan down uh, at some uh, Yamaha holiday camp in the Kyushu Islands, which was a bit weird. We rehearsed there for a week and then we did two or three days with... Um, with the satellite uh, company in the Budokan whilst being connected to um, uh, MTV and just making sure that all of the channels, all of the feeds, everything worked. And as I say, Greg did a good job. And that's all out on box set. We've got it on vinyl in the box set. It's on oh, a wow. CD. Also, there's a DVD in there of the show. Um, there's a great book with all the photos of the moment. There's uh, an envelope with the posters that uh, the Japanese put up along with the ticket stubs. There's also an Asia badge that was designed by Roger Dean. All the artwork is done by Roger. Uh, overall, yeah, no, it's pretty good. And um, we'll be back in Japan uh, next year. They've already asked us if we come back and celebrate the 40th anniversary. Meantime, we'll be on the road in America uh, with Alan Parsons and uh, Asia. And Asia this time will be uh, myself, uh, Jeff Downs, 
um, Billy Sherwood, who started with us way back in 2018 when we supported Journey, and he was singing lead at the time. Um, this time we're going to be taking out uh, Mark Benilla on lead guitar and lead vocals. Mark Benilla played in Keith's band, and that's the connection there. I suggested uh, to the guys that, you know, we should uh, maybe look at somebody like Mark, you know, who, uh, who I know is going to do a great job, and we're really looking forward to working with him. So we might have the, the right Asia back again, you know, so let's just sort That's of see. We'll, uh, we're celebrating the anniversary of the first album, uh, which, you know, is like 40 years old. So we've yep. got something to celebrate and um, uh, let's see how that goes. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I, I tell you, I remember watching that live stream when I was when I was growing up. Um, I was a huge fan of, the, of, of Asia <laughs> at, at the time, still am. Uh, you know those those first few records are uh, were were very important to me growing up, and I, I'm just a, a massive fan of those albums. And um, good to see that the band is still uh, still rolling. That you're busy as yeah. ever, keeping keeping all the music alive, and uh, it's fantastic, man. I, I, I'm it's just a real <laughs> pleasure to speak to you and go go down uh, uh, talking about some of this stuff here with you. Yeah, well, you know, for me, I'm just you know this is what I love doing. I don't plan on on retiring. Retiring, I just plan on you know, working less maybe as the years go by. It really depends how I feel, but I've had so many great moments in my life. There's, there's no reason to sort of cut it off, you know. Uh, the, the reason why I'm, I'm trying to do this thing with Greg and Keith on film is because I believe that is the future, because something is no longer here. doesn't mean that you can no longer see it. Yes, you can see it as a hologram. Yes, you can see it as live footage, and uh, you know, like I'm going to use. And I believe those things need to be done. They need to be. It's a bit like ABBA. You know what ABBA are doing here in London. They've got this uh, Voyager. They've got their own theatre and they're going to be appearing as holograms and things. And It's a whole sort of show they've got together. Right. Now, that's the way they wanted to do it. And I do think that, you know, the public, you know, some people, some generations won't know any difference. So they'll want to see it because sure. they never knew the original. So, you know, this thing is part of our industry now. Yeah, I think it's a great idea, and uh, I look forward to seeing it. Um, well, we'll look out for more news on that. Of uh, Asia dates, um, you got the live at Budokan box set uh, for pre-order now, and of course the ELB ELP book uh, illustrated stories available for it. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, uh, Carl, pleasure talking to you, man. Be well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks so much. I do appreciate it. You take care. All right, man. Bye. Bye bye now. Bye. Thanks to Carl for the interview. For more information, you can visit carlpalmer.com. And for information on the book, you can check out elpbook.com. For upcoming news, interviews, podcasts, reviews, and more, check out parkreport.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can check out our podcast on all our podcast networks and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks.